Okay, good evening everybody. My name is Bill Kassan. I'm an Associate Professor in the Government Department here at the LSE. The Government Department is partially hosting this particular lecture, but there's an added twist in the sense that you all probably realise you're in a very new facility here, a very impressive building, and this particular lecture by Brendan O'Leary forms part of a Shape the World lecture series, which celebrates the completion of this wonderful new building, which opened its doors in June of last year. It was designed by an architectural team, Roger Stirk Harbour and Partners, and there is a number of events as part of this series taking place after this week. One I will mention is the LSE's festival, a week-long series of events taking place from Monday the 2nd to Saturday the 7th of March, which also has the theme of Shape the World. This festival is free to attend and open to all and will explore the difficult question of how social sciences can make the world a better place. This full programme is now online and I can give you the details after the lecture if you come up to me. I have the great pleasure of welcoming as speaker Professor Brendan O'Leary, who is a Lauder Professor of Political Science at the University of Pennsylvania. Brendan is an old LSE alumnus. He did his PhD here. He was a lecturer here. He was a full professor here. He was head of department when I joined the government department a very long time ago in 2001. Since 2003, he has been working in America. So all I can say for sure is that this is the one lecture theatre which Brendan definitely didn't give a lecture in before. <laughs> so the topic is unions and their breakups, the UK's attempted secession from the EU, and its possible outcomes. So two things come to mind. I heard at the weekend in the media that we're now to consider Brexit over. And then I heard Michel Barnier the other day warning the UK that there will still be consequences. So welcome to Brendan, and I'm really hopeful you give him a very warm round of applause. Good afternoon, everybody. It's a delight to be back at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Always remember that part of the title, typically forgotten. It's a pleasure to see old friends, and I mean old friends, in the audience. Uh, the subject matter um, is unfortunately extremely topical. The only change I've had to make is to remove attempted from in front of the UK's attempted secession. Political scientists share one thing in common with politicians, that is to say we are accused of rarely opening our mouths without subtracting from the sum total of human knowledge. I hope what I say in the next 50 minutes will not be uh, classified in that manner. I have a collection of cartoons attached to our subject matter, and this, I think, is uh, in the running for first place. It wasn't originally designed for the scheduled departure at Halloween. Um, it's, it can now be updated, uh, sorry, it can now be updated until January the 31st. My own slogan at the bottom is that Boris Johnson is asking himself where he is landing. 
Uh, and obviously I'm suggesting there that he might be landing at Gallipoli rather than the beaches of Normandy. But in the light of today's speeches, I must conclude that the beach where Boris Johnson thinks he's going is Bondi Beach, somewhere in uh, deepest Australia. Uh, but we'll, we'll come back to that in due course. Today is the first working day after B-Day, and that's not a, a French toilet device. It's the abbreviation for Brexit. I had expected to begin this lecture by making my usual complaint that Brexit is a completely inappropriate acronym. The title of the state in which most of you are resident is the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Britain is not a synonym for the United Kingdom. It's a synonym for Great Britain. And that is, of course, to forget about Northern Ireland, which is a characteristic mode of uh, British thought, uh, one that was recently interrupted as a result of the UK's attempted secession. Northern Ireland is not British. There are British people who live there. Indeed, the very first British people were the English and Scots settlers from uh, the time of King James I, who were sent to control Ireland by controlling Ulster. They are the first British people, and arguably they may be the very last British people. But I get ahead of myself. We can now say today that the appropriate acronym is not UKEXIT. UKEXIT sounds like a, a vomit projectile. <laughs> But it is actually Brexit, and the reason it's Brexit is because, of course, sometime in the late fall, uh, arrangements took place that people weren't expecting. And this is a, another distressed cartoon of a distressed leader. Uh, this is Arlene Foster, the head of the Democratic Unionist Party, dressed here, uh, of course, as an orange woman, and in a state of perplexity after the agreement reached between Leo Varadkar and Boris Johnson. She's posed with four possible meanings to the now newly negotiated front stop. Does it mean the end of the union to be addressed? Does it mean the end of the DUP? Certainly not. The DUP has a, a very lively life ahead of it. Does it mean different rules for Northern Ireland? Absolutely. And does it mean customs in the Irish Sea? Absolutely. This is transformative. And the reason it's transformative is that we can, and the reason we can call it Brexit rather than UKEXIT um, is because the front stop arrangements, as they are now appropriately called, are in fact the original backstop arrangements with a small number of modifications, the most important of which is that Northern Ireland technically remains inside the United Kingdom's customs union, but the administration of that customs union takes place at ports and airports. In consequence, Brexit is now an accurate representation of what has just happened, namely the secession of Great Britain from the European Union, leaving Northern Ireland behind in the economic domain. So, long-winded way of saying, actually, Brexit is now an appropriate title, whereas previously it wasn't. But it's completely wrong to reference the description of what just happened in the fall as Boris's deal. The deal was, in fact, uh, substantially made by Leo Varadkar and Michel Barnier and their respective advisors. And it was, in fact, uh, a a way of going back to the original uh, backstop proposals, but making them permanent. So these front stop arrangements are not in place uh, in the eventuality that the UK might not be able to come up with magical technologies. 
They are permanent arrangements insofar as the withdrawal agreement is maintained, with one proviso, the Northern Ireland Assembly can, in principle, vote to exit from them, appoint to a child return. So if you're an outside political scientist and you're looking at the UK, what are the lessons of the last four or five years? The most obvious one is that, contrary to what people were saying, particularly in law departments, the old story of the UK remains true. The Crown in Parliament is sovereign. The UK Constitution is exactly what Westminster says it is. And attached to that is a very important consideration. Perfidious Albion has not gone away. Perfidious Albion is not intended as an insult to any English people present. The English are no more prone to treachery than any other people on the planet. They have had more opportunities, but they're no, no more inclined to it than any other people. By perfidious Albion, I mean a distinct constitutional condition. The Westminster Parliament is incapable of making a constitutional agreement with the subunits of the United Kingdom that are lasting and permanent and cannot be removed except through a qualified majority vote. There is no institutionalization of constitutionalization inside the UK. The only way you can constitutionalize anything in the UK is through international treaties. And even there, the Westminster Parliament reserves the right to get rid of treaties. So my point is, very, a very obvious one, that the lessons of the last few years are that the UK's sovereign parliament is back and it never really went away. What are the implications for Northern Ireland and Scotland in particular? There is no constitution of Northern Ireland. There's much discussion of said, but there isn't any such constitution within the United Kingdom. It's all subject to revisable legislation at Westminster, with an important qualification I'll give in a moment. And that is also the plight of the Scots. The, um, the Westminster Parliament, particularly in the light of court decisions, is deemed the sole source of sovereign authority inside the United Kingdom. The major and outstanding exception, of course, is Northern Ireland's internationalized constitution through the Good Friday Agreement. It used to be the case that that agreement was protected by a treaty with the government of Ireland. Now it's protected by a treaty with the entire governments of the European Union. The withdrawal agreement protects the Good Friday Agreement in whole and in all of its parts. That is a, a remarkable international transformation. Less noticed, the Good Friday Agreement is now strongly protected by the preferences of the US Congress. The Irish-American Committee in Defense of the Good Friday Agreement successfully persuaded Nancy Pelosi to visit these islands, and it's very clear that there will be no treaty between the United Kingdom and the United States, no trade agreement subject to congressional approval that in any way modifies the Good Friday Agreement. So that is a, a remarkable change. The Good Friday Agreement, just at the moment it appeared to be dying in Northern Ireland, is further internationally protected in a way uh, that nobody particularly expected in advance. 
What about the older union, the union of Great Britain, the union of Scotland with England? I'm going to leave Wales inside brackets, which is where it is left institutionally and constitutionally, and perhaps come back to it if we have time. This is the older union, in the Scots' view, a union of equals. This wonderful map shows votes for Remainers and Leavers across uh, Great Britain and Northern Ireland in the 2016 referendum. And it's proportional to the number of voters in each area. And you'll see that Scotland is a complete sea of yellow. And you can also see that Scotland looks like an angry dog with his face pointed towards Scandinavia, which is where Scotland would much rather be if it possibly could. Now, if we contrast Scotland with Northern Ireland, there is no special status for Scotland as a result of the withdrawal agreement, no international protections for Scotland's parliament or its own specific provisions uh, going back to the time of the Act of Union. And Scotland is currently being emphatically denied the right of secession from the UK's secession. So the constitutional condition of Scotland by comparison with Northern Ireland is strikingly different. That's my first prologue. My second pro prologue is going to be a little bit more academic. 20 years ago, I had the honor of giving the Ernest Gellner Memorial, Memorial Lecture in a much shabbier and uh, inadequate uh, lecture theatre. And in that, on that occasion, I made two arguments, namely that democratic multinational federations, if they're going to be stable over time, they either require a dominant people, the Staatsvolk, who, roughly speaking, you can translate as a people who comprise over 50% of the relevant state, or, if they don't have a Staatsvolk, the relevant federation must have specific power-sharing arrangements at the centre that grant parity to all the nations, proportional representation of each of them, grant each of them autonomy in each domain of culture that matters to them, and obviously veto rights over matters of profound concern. The logic of the argument then was to say that the European Union cannot ever become a majoritarian federation. To survive and persist, it requires the maintenance of consociational or power-sharing devices because there is no European Staatsvolk. Even if you made all the Brits into honorary Germans, there would not be enough people to make up a dominant people inside the European Union. And by the way, of course, that would cause mutual offense. Sorry about that. Now, when I made this argument, 20 years ago, I did not then anticipate uh, the UK's attempted secession from the EU. But there was a, a logical, empirical implication of my reasoning, namely that the stability of the United Kingdom rests essentially upon the decisions, the generosity or the collective stupidity of the dominant people, the Staatsvolk, the English. In subsequent follow-up work, in a, related, in a domain related to this, together with my colleague John McGarry, we investigated the conditions under which multinational federations break down. And our conclusion emphatically was that the breakdown of such federations should not analytically be attributed to the actions of secessionists. 
In virtually every case, the relevant multinational federation broke down because of re-centralization or efforts at de-democratization in the center of the relevant political system. So the Soviet Union broke down not because the Latvians seceded, but because there was an attempted coup in the Soviet Union that it, uh, intended to re-centralize power and to remove all the reforms of Gorbachev. Yugoslavia did not break down because Slovenes wanted to be free. It broke down fundamentally because the Serbs and their political leaders sought dominance over the Yugoslav Federation, and that was the key trigger. So you can see that the theme here is straightforward. It's the dominant people and its decision-making that matters in preserving multinational polities. I've talked loosely about the Union as if we all know what, what that means, the Union of the United Kingdom or the European Union. There are, in fact, three important types of Union. In confederations, in principle, it's relatively easy to join them, and in principle, it's relatively easy to exit from them. Relatively easy. In the case of federations, it's very rare for there to be an actual right of secession. Exit from federations is usually harder, frequently contested, sometimes violent. It's only occasionally constitutionally available as an option. What about union states like the one here? There aren't many of them. In Western Europe, the, the best-known examples are Spain, Denmark, and the United Kingdom itself. India officially describes itself as a union state. It's not, in any technical sense, a federation. Now, what's interesting about both Denmark and the UK is that at various junctures, they have recognized the right of secession. Northern Ireland has had the right to become part of, the, uh, part of a united Ireland since at least 1973 through a referendum and before that through a decision of its parliament under the Ireland Act of 1949. The UK has had no principled objection to the secession of Northern Ireland for a very long time. And it did grant Scotland the right to have a referendum in 2014. So the UK has no absolute prohibition on the idea of secession internally. And that makes it strikingly different from Spain. When we talk about secessions, my discipline, I'm afraid, is deeply inadequate partly because we've been uh, colonized by economists who like very simple models. And according to Paul Collier, who had the misfortune of teaching me economics, we can divide all theories of secession into two types. Theories based on greed, it's Scotland's oil. If they hadn't had the oil, they wouldn't want to become independent. Or grievances, the Catholic Irish have centuries of grievances against English and British misrule, and they carry chips on their shoulder to this day as a consequence of these grievances. That's a stereotype of the contrast. Now, plainly, secessions can have both elements of grievance and elements of material greed, the belief that you will do better with the secession. But most of this literature is highly unsatisfactory because it doesn't deal with politics properly. There is a literature which suggests that we should, particularly in democracies, focus on whether the secessionists are being denied recognition, equal status. Do they have equal dignity? 
Are they treated as partners rather than uh, simply as minorities? That literature is largely driven by uh, a focus on the history of the, uh, the Québécois in Canada, but it also has implications elsewhere. Nearly all of the politics literature focuses on the aspiration for self-determination. Where does it come from? Remarkably, in this literature, the unionists are not focused on. What are their motivations? What are they trying to do? What strategies do they adopt to maintain the union? What strategies do they sometimes adopt to permit the downsizing of the union? And that's a theme I'm going to return to in a moment. But there is one literature in this field which might be of purchase for our purposes this evening. There's a literature on peaceful secessions. I do not expect Scotland to depart from the United Kingdom violently. I do not expect northern nationalists in Northern Ireland to be the source of violence if there is a secession to create a reunified Ireland. So what do peaceful secessions have in common? This uh, reasoning that I'm going to summarize for you comes from the work of the late Robert Young, a good friend of mine who smoked too much. Take the warning. In the case of peaceful secessions, they have 13 attributes. I'm not going to explore them all in minute detail. But he argued that secessions inside uh, regimes, when they take place peacefully, occur after protracted constitutional disputes, after a declaration of intent to withdraw, when that declaration is recognized by the, the relevant unionists or federalists. There are principled agreements to have negotiations, and the secession is a momentous, galvanizing event, both for the union and for the secessionists. Now, that nicely describes what you've just been through in Brexit. What about the negotiations? In most historic cases of peaceful secessions, Young points out that smart secessionists widen their coalitions before they leave. They create grand coalitions. That is exactly what the UK's government under Theresa May failed to do. They tried to exit solely on the basis of the position of the dominant party. In typical peaceful secessions, Negotiations occur with few participants, and there's a quick settlement. Obviously, that hasn't applied in this case. And secession is accomplished legally. There's an effort to ensure that this process takes place respecting uh, the constitutional order. Unlike violent or contested secessions, the external environment is conducive to the legitimation of the secession because outside powers recognize the secession and avoid intervening uh, in the process as it's underway. Surprisingly, Young finds that after the secession has occurred, there are two notable features. One is the relevant entities remain constitutionally and structurally the same. This is not a moment that leads to large-scale constitutional or institutional reform, either in the rump or among the secessionists. You keep what you have at that time, partly because managing the secession is itself such a momentous uh, task. Policy divergence begins almost immediately, 
and secession is irrevocable. That will be disappointing news for those of you who are Remainers, if the UK fits this uh, schema of peaceful secessions. Note, however, that in Young's arguments, there is no central place for the use of the referendum, either as a trigger for secession or as a sealant to confirm the negotiations between the unionists and the secessionists. Nor is there any account of party political maneuvers, which are always critical in uh, the uh, elaboration and execution of secessions. But what is interesting comparatively from uh, a comparative political scientist's point of view is that the UK's exit from the European Union is the first constitutional secession from a long-established democratic institution. And it was a close-run thing, a 52-48 vote. In other cases, and we don't have many of them, the result has also been extraordinarily close. The Parti Québécois had two referendums. In one of those, it lost by a percentage point. The Scottish referendum was lost by the SNP, having come from 27% in the opinion polls up to 50, back down to 45. It was close, but so far without success. So there's a small world of secessions characterized by the use of referendums, peaceful secessions. How, how do those go? I'm going to uh, try and address uh, this question. There are, of course, plenty of blocked secessions elsewhere in the world in undemocratic environments. Most notoriously, Kurdistan in Iraq recently voted by 93% to secede from Iraq on the basis of a 72% turnout. And that secessionist bid was crushed by a very curious coalition of General Soleimani of Iran, uh, the United States government, and the Iraqi government with the support uh, of a range of allies. That's the more normal pattern. An attempt to secede within a, uh, an authoritarian or semi-democratic semi political system, and it's crushed militarily. That is not what I anticipate in either Scotland or Northern Ireland. You'll be relieved to know. So let's get back to empirical discussions. Northern Ireland, I'm going to display in a series of maps, has gone through what is, in his, if we look over the, uh, a long period, an astonishing demographic transformation, which has fed through to politics. In the century since Northern Ireland's existence in 1921, we are, we, we are seeing now the attrition of unionism inside Northern Ireland. When the Westminster elections took place in 1918, this is the moment of democratization of the UK. Those of you who think it happened in Magna Carta, go and read some history. Those of you who think it happened in the Glorious Revolution of 1688, go and read some history. And by the way, the name for that is the Dutch coup. England did not become democratic with the Great Reform Act of 1832. It's got a case in 1884. But the 1918 elections are the first democratic male universal suffrage, and all women over the age of 30 also had the vote. Now, in this election in Ireland, plainly most of Ireland solidly voted for the Sinn Féin party. 
and for other nationalists who were not successful in winning seats. Ulster Unionists were successful in North East Ireland, and that, found, that was the underlying basis for the partition which followed in the Government of Ireland Act of 1920. Now, that partition was deliberately unfair. It created a, an Ulster Protestant majority of two to one over the local cultural Catholics who preferred Ireland to be autonomous or independent. And the original border was recognized to be unfair, so that in the treaty negotiated between the British government and Sinn Féin, it was agreed that there would be a boundary commission, and that boundary commission would alter the border appropriately, taking into account popular preferences and other criteria. But that boundary commission never had its results published, and in all sorts of interesting ways that I can elaborate under questioning, was sabotaged. And the aspirations of the then Irish Free State for a bigger Irish Free State, represented here in the lines uh, marked in blue and purple, were completely defeated. So Northern Ireland, between 1920 and 25, is stabilized with a two-to-one majority of Protestants over Catholics. The only way that could endure if Catholics bred at the rate at which the Pope recommended would be if Catholics out-migrated from Northern Ireland absolutely and proportionately at a higher rate than Protestants. And that's exactly what happened for the next 50 years, partly because of the characteristic way in which Northern Ireland was governed by the then Ulster Unionist Party. In 1964, as you'll see in the top map, in the elections to the Westminster Parliament from Northern Ireland, all 12 seats were won by the Ulster Unionists. A few years later, after the civil rights movement and the violent repression of the civil rights movement, cultural Catholics are mobilized a little bit more into politics, and they win three out of the 12 seats available in Northern Ireland. I'm not going to give you um, a detailed micro-history of Northern Ireland, but in 1983, for the very first time, Northern Ireland had 18 seats in the, Western, uh, in the Westminster Parliament, not 12. And in the first election, on the basis of that expansion, unionists won 16 out of 18 seats. But no, no less than uh, 20 years later, 11 out of 18 seats were held by unionists, seven by nationalists. In that interval, the impact of the Fair Employment Act bites, and Catholics do not migrate out of Northern Ireland at a higher rate than Protestants, either proportionately or absolutely. Indeed, a significant number of Ulster Protestants migrate to Great Britain to its excellent universities. So we see here a, a, a grand shift over time. And in the last Westminster elections, the tipping point occurs. What is decisive here is that Belfast tips. Nationalists win North Belfast, West Belfast, and South Belfast. Unionists are confined to East Belfast. It's a dramatic result. It would be like the PLO winning in Tel Aviv. Right? <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, you see, you think it's laughable. Right? The, the mere idea is laughable. But that's what's just happened. Northern nationalists have a majority of the Westminster seats in Belfast, a city founded by Presbyterians, a city to which Catholics did not go in significant numbers until the 1830s. This is a, a major transformation. So Northern Ireland's electoral map already shows that Ulster Unionists are no longer locally dominant. Of course, um, that doesn't uh, tell us absolutely everything about the future. But in 1926, you see this very clear two-to-one majority. By the time of the last census, you can see that uh, cultural Catholics and cultural Protestants are neck and neck demographically, with a significant proportion of uh, people who identify with neither religion or who refuse to identify uh, as anything other than other. So a two-block world is being replaced by a three-block world. I can confidently tell you that the census of 2021 will show a decisive Catholic cultural majority in Northern Ireland. I say that confidently because I've looked at the school data and cultural Catholics in schools are at least 57% of the local population. It will, of course, be some time before a demographic majority is converted into an electoral majority. But I would expect that to occur by the end of this decade. Now, I'm not saying that demography is everything, but demography has been very important in explaining voting behavior in Northern Ireland. What is decisive from now on is that Northern Ireland's place in the United Kingdom depends entirely on the preferences of cultural Catholics. If they solidly are against staying in the Union, there is no obstacle to their departure to create a United Ireland. So Unionist strategy, as regards Northern Ireland, must be either to persuade them that a United Ireland is undesirable or to persuade them that their life will be better inside a reformed Northern Ireland. Now, that's not the only thing that's going on. As I've indicated, there's now a, a, a trichotomous structure inside Northern Ireland, nationalists and unionists and others. The others are primarily, like most of you, bourgeois, educated. Like many of you, they don't believe in God, any God. And most of them are social liberals in favor of gay rights, favor of gay marriage, um, and generally very positive towards immigrants. And they agree with one another on the European Union. They'd like to remain in the European Union. So the others align with the nationalists on every question that is not the national question. And on all those questions, they don't align with unionists. So that's a pivotal group. How's its political uh, preferences going, how, how are its political preferences going to alter over the next decade? If we look at the referendum in Northern Ireland on remain or leave within the European Union, remain won by 56 to 44. In the Westminster election just held in uh, November, 
55% voted for Remain parties and 45% voted for Leave parties, excluding the micro parties. If we look in depth at the voting behavior during the 2016 referendum, then 11 out of Northern Ireland's 18 constituencies voted Remain, and in every safe nationalist seat, Remain won by over 8,000 votes. Remain won both of the swing seats in Belfast, uh, basically predicting the outcome that occurred very recently in the Westminster election. And of course, Remain won all the border constituencies, as well as the two big urban locations, Belfast and Derry. Two safe unionist seats actually voted Remain. And if we go uh, forward to the election just held, uh, 10 out of the 18 constituencies voted Remain. So this is suggestive. It implies strongly that the EU cleavage doesn't just map onto the nationalist unionist cleavage, but clearly separates out a small section of liberal Protestants who strongly prefer to remain in the EU. So what's going to happen? I think one way to think about these questions over the next five or ten years is through the use of these simple matrices. I ask you to consider the possibility that Brexit will work positively for Great Britain. There was no laughter. Interesting. I expected irony or some, but I allow that possibility. The, the other possibility is that it works badly for Great Britain. And then we have two logical possibilities as regards the newly created front stop. It could work positively for Northern Ireland, or it could work badly. Now, if Brexit works badly for Great Britain and the front stop works badly for Northern Ireland, I think that's going to hasten the enthusiasm for Irish reunification. Cell number four. If Brexit works badly for Great Britain, but the front stop works positively for Northern Ireland, the impetus to be in favour of Irish re reunification will be reduced a bit, compared at least to cell four. What about if Brexit works positively for Great Britain and the front stop works positively for Northern Ireland? Well, in that scenario, Northern Ireland will be integrated into the European economy, but there won't be, in my view, any impact on the pace of the pressure for Irish reunification, which will largely be driven by demography. But what happens if the front stop works badly for Northern Ireland and Brexit works positively for Great Britain? That's the scenario in which the Northern Ireland Assembly might vote by a majority to get out of the front stop. But the interesting thing that happens then, if that scenario plays out, is that it immediately re-raises the prospect of a hard border on the island of Ireland. And together with my colleague John Gary at Queen's University Belfast, we've carried out a series of surveys and quasi-experiments in deliberative polls. A hard border across the island of Ireland doubles the likelihood that cultural Catholics vote in favor of Irish reunification. And we might think about this in the following way. There are sleeper cultural Catholics, people who are brought up by their families to prefer a united Ireland. 
but are basically content with the status quo. But any significant damage to that status quo, as long as the United Ireland looks like an attractive option, that may well reshape their preferences. That's one way of looking uh, at the period ahead. The other is to focus, as economists would have us do, on material matters. And here, crudely, we can say there's two possibilities. One, that Great Britain increases the real subvention of Northern Ireland. The subvention is the gap between what is spent in Northern Ireland and what is raised there in taxation. Crudely, it's a measure of the extent to which Great Britain subsidizes Northern Ireland. One can imagine a world in which Great Britain deliberately increases the extent to which Northern Ireland is supported by public expenditure, and that has a real impact on the local economy. And by contrast, one can imagine a world in which they cut the real subvention. They're much more preoccupied with getting votes in the north of England, major infrastructure rural pro uh, projects inside England itself. The Northern Irish, because they're not violent, there's no point in spending extra on them. There are pressures towards cutting the subvention. And then on the other side, there's two possibilities with regard to Ireland's growth compared to Great Britain. Ireland could continue, as it has since 1990, to outpace Great Britain in economic growth year on year. That's one possibility. It's uh, a reasonable possibility, even if they're both adversely affected by Brexit. But the other possibility is Brexit works so successfully that Great Britain's growth rate outpaces Ireland's growth rate. So that again generates four cells, but slightly different. If Great Britain stops subsidizing Northern Ireland or reduces it, uh, its scale of subsidy, then with a world of successful Irish economic development, that's going to enhance the prospects of Irish reunification. If by contrast, the Irish growth pace is outpaced by that of Great Britain, then I think the south of Ireland becomes less interested in Irish reunification. They begin to count the costs of such an enterprise more than they would otherwise do. Because I think it's unlikely that the UK is going to actually increase the subvention, I'm going to talk no more about that in uh, the presentation in the lecture. But obviously, these create um, interesting ways of thinking about the future. And you can apply the same logic, the second uh, set of matrices, to thinking about Scotland. And we'll get back to that in a moment. I think the most obvious economic prediction in the decade ahead is that the normal economic discourse among sober people, people who read the Financial Times, people who got graduate degrees from the London School of Economics, the normal, the normal supposition will be that Northern Ireland stands to benefit economically from Irish reunification. And that's a big shift. And that shift had already occurred before the 2016 referendum in the UK. Now, we should stand back and ask ourselves, what is the interest of the Conservative Party, the Conservative and Unionist Party, the Tories, in these developments? What is their party interest? I'll come back to that. We know that in the case of Northern Ireland, 
The Secretary of State is obliged to hold a referendum if there is objective evidence of a sufficient growth and support for Irish reunification that uh, he is obliged under these circumstances to hold a referendum. I say it's objective because they can't pull a fast one. They can't say, let's have a referendum now, and there's no evidence that there's majority support for Irish reunification. They can't, in effect, have a sabotage referendum. It's justifiable. It has to be objectively uh, seen by courts that there is a case that there's a majority for Irish unification. My own guess is that the test that courts will take will not be public opinion polls, but rather they will take the test of a majority emerging for a referendum inside the Northern Ireland Assembly if it's sitting. Now, what's interesting about the referendum as designed is there's no formal role for the government of Ireland. It has no veto on whether a referendum takes place. It doesn't even have the right to be officially consulted by the Secretary of State. It would be extraordinary if there were no, no such consultations, but in principle, Ireland has no veto or no direct role in the referendum process. But note an extraordinary feature of the Good Friday Agreement, much neglected. A referendum can be held every seven years. Think about that, Scotland. Scotland held a referendum in 2014. So why shouldn't Scotland have the right to have a referendum in 2021? And in the case of Northern Ireland, that seven, every seven years is in perpetuity. There is no provision of the treaty, which I have just told you is now protected by the EU 27 and by the US Congress. It's there as a permanent provision. I'm not saying it would be always activated, but it's there. Ireland, in its constitution, is committed to Irish reunification, according to a set of standard democratic, pluralist, and diversity values. Uh, the textual implications of the Good Friday Agreement and the Irish constitution, we can debate them here, but I don't think they actually require a referendum in Ireland. They would require the democratic expression of the consent of the Irish Parliament, but they don't require two referendums, as most people insist. In practice, however, referendums would be required to modify Ireland's constitution. So how would this world unfold? I will be getting to Scotland, I promise you. There are basically two ways in which the Irish state could approach a referendum about to be held in the North. One would be to say that the following set of principles will apply in the event of a united Ireland. So rather like the case of the Constitution of South Africa, where they agreed a set of principles that would go into the permanent constitution and agreed a role for courts to check that these principles did go into the constitution, Ireland could make a pledge that these sets of principles would apply. That's their first option. The second is to indicate a precise model of what Irish reunification would be like. Will it be an Irish confederation? Will it be an Irish federation? Or will it be an Irish unitary state? I think it will in effect be a choice between two types of unitary state. 
Under one model, the Good Friday Agreement would be transferred into a united Ireland. Northern Ireland would have a power-sharing executive. The institutions of the Good Friday Agreement would exist. Utatis mutandis with the British now playing the role that the Irish used to play. That's one model. That's the maximum model. The whole of the Good Friday Agreement transfers. The minimal model would involve the commitments made by Britain to rigorous impartiality between the two nationalities, that that would be preserved. The citizenship rights of Ulster Protestants as British citizens would be preserved, presumably with some kind of in perpetuity clause. That's the other possibility. The maximum devolution, the maximum Good Friday Agreement model has been quietly assumed by many people to be what will actually happen. It's already there in textual forms and so on. But there's two problems. One is that a United Ireland would have a West Lothian question on steroids. One third of, the Northern Ireland, of, of Ireland's parliament would consist of people from Northern Ireland with devolved powers. So does, do the other members of the Irish parliament get to vote on matters affecting Northern Ireland? Surely not. But do the Northern Irish get to vote on all matters shaping public policy in the South, including the budget? This is a very difficult problem. John Gary and I conducted an interesting experiment with a, a large group of people. We presented them. We said to them, look, there could be a united Ireland. We don't care if you're opposed or in favor. What we are interested in finding out is which model you prefer if you have to choose a unitary Irish state with Northern Ireland disappearing, no, no Northern Ireland border, no Northern Ireland parliament, or uh, the Good Friday Agreement transfers in whole. And what we found was that in the morning, before they were explained the details of each model, Protestants were in favor of transferring the whole of the Good Friday Agreement. But by the evening, in discussion with their peers, they were in favor of the other model. Why? Because they thought it was more workable, more feasible. And they also gave some thought to the possibility that their role inside a Dublin parliament, roughly one-sixth of the population, might be more interesting for them than a world in which they have to co-govern Northern Ireland with Sinn Féin with their immediate ethnic rivals. So it's interesting. It, you should not automatically assume, therefore, that the relevant new minority wants to preserve all the minority arrangements that have been built inside the Good Friday Agreement. So these are questions that are going to have to be addressed over the next decade as regards Northern Ireland. We can say that the old Protestant view was that home rule meant Rome rule, Ireland was culturally homogeneous and economically backward, and they couldn't afford us. Well, the new wisdom is that Ireland is a, a center of pagan excess, uh, no Christianity left, it's hyper-pluralist, it's economically advanced, and they're so advanced they won't want to pay for us. That's the switch in discourses. It's quite remarkable. Now, 
All I want to say in conclusion here is it will be prudent for both Dublin and London to prepare for this. This is coming by the end of the decade, uh, and it would be appropriate to prepare for it. But I want to make the political science point that a referendum generally favors the status quo. It's difficult for the secessionists to build sufficient support. The impetus of Brexit would be to accelerate what um, demographic change might have brought, might have brought about anyway. Okay. I'm, yes? Quickly. No, not quickly. Ten more minutes. Okay. Refused. This is a former student of mine. <laughs> I can therefore behave badly, at least temporarily, but I need to. Let us go across the Sea of Moyle to Scotland uh, and consider Scotland's position over the next decade. Scotland will be the place where we're most likely to see a referendum as a result of the Brexit referendum. That's what the SNP wants, and it, it may be what the SNP succeeds in getting. This cartoon shows what was predicted for Scotland by The Economist in 2014. It shows a piper seducing lots of yes Scottish voters and taking them towards a cliff edge. The piper looks suspiciously like Karl Marx. <laughs> but you only have to think about this for a few minutes to realize that this is in fact today's UK. Welcome to independence, welcome to the fiscal hole, welcome to shaky public finances, falling oil revenues, and a slide into irrelevance. That's GB, not Scotland, Kirka 2014. The world at least for some of us, has changed. The SNP is posing questions about its status vis-a-vis -vis Northern Ireland. Why special status for Northern Ireland but not for Scotland? If Northern Ireland can have a referendum every seven years, why can't Scotland have one in 2021? If the withdrawal agreement protected the Good Friday Agreement because of the impact of Brexit on the Good Friday Agreement, why does Her Majesty's government refuse to recognize the impact of the UK's exit on the terms under which the Better Together team won in 2014? And we have a very stark clash of mandates between England and Scotland going forward. And we know that that is precisely the circumstances under which two-unit unions or two-unit confederations break up. Uh, I have a list of them here. I won't go through them all. But I want to emphasize that legally, Great Britain is a two-unit entity. Wales is not a, a, a third party. It's subsumed inside England. And the clash of mandates is quite striking. This is from uh, the election just before Christmas. The conservative level of support in England is almost the same as the support for the SNP in Scotland. In both cases, uh, Labour did very badly, both in England and Scotland. So you have a very strong clash of mandates. In no sense can you question the mandate the SNP won to have a referendum. It's at least as strong as the mandate, 
that Boris Johnson won for a Brexit-ready oven, or an oven-ready Brexit. I can't, can't remember which way about it was put. Now, think about this in party terms. If you're a Conservative, 75% of Scottish voters are against you. In England, it's only just over 50%. So if you're a rational English Conservative downsizer, you can take a risk. If you let Scotland vote in another referendum, they could vote to leave. And if they left, that would be fine. You'd have more money to spend on the north of England to consolidate your new electoral base. And if you won, you'd have re-legitimated the union and you would have given the SNP a decisive defeat. I expect those kinds of thoughts to become more frequent among the Conservatives, more frequent than they are now. English public opinion is entirely amenable. We know that during uh, the height of the Brexit controversy, English public opinion said, by and large, they would be happy to leave if the price was losing Scotland and the price was losing Northern Ireland. Quite remarkable. So I'm suggesting there's space there for conservative Machiavellian thinking. The most difficult strategic choices in the period ahead are those of the SNP. What do they do if the Tories insist on not granting them a right of referendum? Do they go to win a majority mandate in the Scottish Parliament with allies like the Greens? Do they contemplate abstaining from Westminster, which would be against their uh, long-established legal and constitutional traditions? Do they think of emulating Charles Stuart Parnell's strategy in the Westminster Parliament in the 19th century, making it unworkable? Are there ways you can do that? Would they contemplate civil disobedience, and if so, in what way? Do they contemplate exploring a pact with a, a new Labour leader? These are tough questions for the SNP. They now face new Irish questions, because if Scotland were to leave Great Britain and to rejoin the European Union, I think there's no doubt that they would be accepted by the rest of the European Union. I'm happy to have an argument with anybody about that, but I think they would be accepted. But Scotland would then face a hard border with England. Scotland would have to immediately commit to transiting towards the euro. And, of course, it will have disappointed fishermen, but the fishermen are going to be disappointed anyway under all scenarios. So that's not too distressful. But the point I want to make is that just like the SDLP and Sinn Féin in Northern Ireland, just like the Parti Québécois in uh, Canada, and just like the Catalan nationalists in Catalonia, governing and trying to have a referendum for independence at the same time is difficult. Because if you govern, you distress some people, <coughs> even if they're on your own ethnic or religious side. So the SNP will have a tough time ahead, but it could well nevertheless succeed. It's completely improper to respond to the SNP by saying that uh, they didn't win a 50% majority in votes. Well, neither did the Conservatives, and neither did 
the Labour Party nor the Conservatives when they posed momentous referendums in 1975 and in 2016. So what I want to conclude by saying, in order to please the Chairman, is that matters in the decade ahead remain in the hands of the Staatsvolk, the English. They decide. But their decision-making is extremely controlled in the case of Northern Ireland. Their hands are tied, and they don't care about it. They care about Scotland more than they care about Northern Ireland. But inside Scotland, what has just happened is experienced as a recentralization and as a breach of the terms under which the referendum was won in 2014. And therefore, that sentiment, that desire for a fresh referendum for independence is not going to go away. I conclude by saying that the Tories are torn between fake unionism, claiming that they really care about the whole of the United Kingdom, whereas in fact they really only care about England. They're torn between that and the possibility of benefiting from getting rid of both Scotland and Northern Ireland. I should have said enough to upset at least one person in the room. I will now uh, open myself up to questions. I didn't say anything about Wales, and I can if you want to address Wales. Thank you. So we've got about half an hour for questions, and I think Brendan prefers to take maybe three at a go. There are two roving mics. Um, when you ask a question, please say who you are, where you're coming from, and also we've all heard many speeches about Brexit already. Just ask a question. No need to make a speech. So over here is the first question, then over there, two over there on the left. Uh, yeah, um, it's an interesting uh, last line. The Tories are torn between faux unionism and ruthless downsizing. Considering that Ireland is the last, uh, one of the last colonies of the British Empire, is this just a, de a late delayed action of decolonization? Thanks. I'm thinking about the... Um, Where are you from? Well, who are you? Uh, Richard Turner Kings. Um, thinking about the um, different sectors of the economy in both Northern Ireland and Scotland, are they more exposed than the rest of the UK to what we're going to be going through? And does that therefore mean that they were more likely to suffer economically? If, oh, uh, my name is Paul. Uh, if, the, uh, if Scotland and Northern Ireland were to depart from the United Kingdom, uh, wh what kind of effect would that have on, well, the official existence of the United Kingdom as, say, for instance, a permanent member of the Security Council of the UN or, or at, at other international bodies where it has something of a privileged position? I'll take those three questions. I'll go in reverse order. The name of the state would be Q, the Kingdom of England and Wales. It would be the successor state of the United Kingdom, and therefore it would keep its position on the UN Security Council, just as the Russian Federation kept 
uh, as the successor state, the seat of the Soviet Union. Uh, it would be a smaller place. It would have serious difficulties in having bases for its navy unless it had agreements with the Scots, and it would lose some of its best fighters from Scotland. So there would be repercussions for the power and standing of Great Britain, but it would not lose its place in international organizations because it would be the successor state. The question here was on economic impact. As I tried to indicate, if things go badly from Brexit in Northern Ireland, that's going to be blamed on Brexit, and that will make Irish reunification more enthusiastically received among those who are hit by that phenomenon. In Scotland, I think it's going to be a little bit more difficult because if it's a, a tough exit for GB as a whole, Scotland's going to suffer under, under that experience. Will the Scots have the courage to take a risk in that scenario? Electorates are sometimes very timid in conditions where they're frightened about their futures. But I think enough has been done to dent their collective dignity and pride by English Conservatives to make them enthusiastic about independence as a response to all the difficulties that will flow ahead. Ireland. Ireland was Great Britain's, uh, uh, was England's first colony, subsequently Great Britain's. Uh, you can interpret what has been happening as a very slow decolonization in the sense that Northern Ireland was set up to ensure that settlers outnumbered natives inside Northern Ireland. The special feature of the arrangements was to turn natives into a minority inside their own homeland. And you can interpret the Good Friday Agreement reached by consensus across the island, majority support in both jurisdictions, as the final unwinding of colonization because under the provisions of the Good Friday Agreement, both Ulster Protestants and Northern Nationalists and the entirety of Nationalists on the island agreed to the provisions under which uh, the Good Friday Agreement was made. So that formally, to me at any rate, ended the remaining colonial residues. Achieving Irish reunification will of course put, put a full stop to that whole process. Okay, we can have another round of questions at the front here, uh, in the middle. Hello, uh, my name is Joanna Cherry and I'm a SNP MP for Edinburgh Southwest. Thank you for an absolutely fascinating lecture. I was really interested in your statement that uh, in most of the secessionist movements that have been successful, there's been no central place for a referendum. So I guess I'm inviting you to be openly critical of my party's strategy but I pose this question politically for my party. The fact is there was a referendum in 2014 and we have to find a way of demonstrating that Scottish public opinion has changed from what it was then. And I suppose this links into what you talked about, the difficulty for governing and fighting for independence at the same time. Because any election we go into in Scotland, the only, the, the, there's not... Independence is not the only issue. The state of education, the NHS, all the issues that are bread and butter in a general election. Equally, general elections we go into at a UK level, although we're not seeking to govern, there are other issues, this time most obviously Brexit. Sure. 
I guess I'm asking to publicly pick your brains <laughs> about what you would do if you were us faced with the impasse we currently face. Thanks. I think it's a, it's a great question, and I do not have an easy answer. I would say that it's very difficult for the SNP to resile from its formal commitment to the idea that a referendum will be the mechanism. And it's very difficult for them also to resile from the position that provided we get a majority in the Scottish Parliament with allies or without allies, that's the trigger for having the referendum. So if you were hiring me as your constitutional advisor, I would say do what you intend to do, namely run for the Scottish Parliament on the idea of getting a mandate for a referendum. But I would be very careful about naming the date for the referendum. You would want to maximize your freedom of choice as to when the referendum will be held. You don't want the date of the referendum to be in the hands of Boris Johnson. But I, I look forward to uh, continuing this conversation later, perhaps at dinner. Can we have two in the middle? Take two questions. Hi, thanks. Um, I'm Alex. I'm interning in Parliament. So I wanted to ask... Um, You're the Italian Parliament? No, I'm interning in Parliament. Oh, thank you. Um, rather different. It's <laughs> <laughs> yes. the first time I met the Italian Parliament in person. So. It's okay. Don't, don't worry. Um, so I wanted to ask you, what do you think the uh, effect on public opinion in England could be if there's a general election where the UK government uh, doesn't have a majority um, in England, especially with increasing devolution? meaning that the UK government more and more uh, just governs England. I mean, do you think that English votes for English laws would be um, a sufficient safeguard, or do you think it would be difficult to mobilise English public opinion against the union, or do you think it would just be general discontent? Second question. Hi, my name's Morris. I'm a student at LLC. I'm asking, wonder that... Since you talk about union, the union of the the union and the breakup, one of the of course the union that initially broke up was the union of the United Kingdom and Ireland in 1922. Whereas a century afterwards, we're seeing we have seen gradual erosions of various features. Ireland no longer dominion. Ireland no longer currency union. So, what would you think with the Brexit? How much of the further erosion of this ex-union, of the vestigious union, could be happening as well as whether or not what developments in Northern Ireland could have had, what kind of impact would developments in Northern Ireland had to this gradual erosion of the legacy relationships given the previous union? I've had two complex multi-part questions. Um, in regard to the question just posed, I think it's very interesting the extent to which Ireland progressively unwound the treaty and made itself into a republic, sought to make itself uh, a Gaelic cultural nation-state, sought to accomplish and prove that it was independent in terms of public policy. But really, Irish unification only justified itself economically when Ireland joined and thrived under the European Union. 
And what that has made, what, it, what, what that has produced, is a total solidarity with the European Union in the Republic of Ireland. If you look at polling evidence of those with degrees, 99% favor remaining in the European Union. It's only a very small proportion of the Irish public and the less well-educated formally among the Irish public who would ever contemplate leaving. So we've seen over 100 years uh, a de-Britification of sovereign Ireland and an embrace of the European identity. I would expect that to happen quite rapidly with northern nationalists inside Northern Ireland, but not with Northern Irish Protestants. Their desire to preserve their British identity is powerful and real. They will insist, as they have every right to insist, on the maintenance of their British citizenship, even if there were to be a unified Ireland. The provisions of the Good Friday Agreement protect the citizenship rights of everybody in Northern Ireland to either Irish or British citizenship or both. And there's no time restriction placed on that. So I would expect them to want to retain those British connections. I don't, that there are lots of um, male royals with destabilized reputations, um, potentially available for some kind of symbolic role uh, that, that, one, that one can imagine. Um, but I'm not going to go there, having just gone there. The English question. Well, that was really the core of the argument. These things are, in my view, in the hands of the English. And they're, in particular, in the hands of the Tory party. And their electoral strategy, as openly advertised, is to consolidate the new seats they won from Labour in the North. If they're serious about that, that involves a really significant change in political economy. And at the same time, they appear to be embracing an entirely high-risk strategy, seeking trade agreements elsewhere and not significantly aligning with the EU. So they're going to create a lot of economic turbulence in England. And what I'm suggesting is that in that environment, it will be quite tempting to consider getting rid of the Scots. After all, they're incurably social democratic, whether they're voting SNP or Labour. It's the same species from an English Tory point of view. So that's what I think is one feasible scenario. So at the back there, we've got three people. Take three questions. Hi, my name is Patrick. Thanks very much for the, for the lecture. Um, just a quick question. You make a big assumption that um, Europe will be successful through all of this. I would have thought the big, and, and it seems that this is the biggest threat to the UK, given the precarious situation of, you know, a European breakup is possibly still on the cards as Merkel fades away. Um, do you give any, could you give any probability or insight into the success of Europe over the five, next five to ten years? Shall I answer that now? Or wait? Okay. Uh, hi, my name's Alice and I'm from Portadown, Northern Ireland, but I study law here at the LSE. Um, 
I was just wondering, like, I think it's brilliant what you're saying. The only thing I was wondering is about how Stormont hasn't been up and running for three years. That's the only thing I was wondering what your opinion was on that. And in considering that, do you think that, and the, considering the lack of trust between nationalists and unions, particularly between the DUP and Sinn Féin at executive level, do you think that there is the appetite in Northern Ireland for a referendum on Irish unity, considering the failure of power sharing in Northern Ireland for so long, and considering you know, the history of the Troubles, do you think it would be appropriate for there to be a refer referendum on Irish unity, considering that there would probably be a slim majority? Do you think it would be appropriate for that to happen? Thank you very much. It's most informative. Um, can you suggest what comfort there might be for Scottish fishermen if and when um, Scotland leaves the EU, uh, leaves the UK and, and stays in the EU? Okay, um, there's no comfort for Scottish fishermen in all scenarios. <laughs> in my view, the, it would be a big risk to waste the bargaining resources of the UK with the EU to insist on um, going back to the status quo ante in fishing. Not simply because, as we all know, the UK exports more fish to Europe than it imports. Um, the fishing sector is not politically or economically significant enough, sadly for fishermen, to matter sufficiently in negotiations. That's the position uh, I take. It doesn't mean I'm right, but that's the one I take. On Northern Ireland, the one question you are implicitly posing is whether a simple majority is sufficient for changing the status of Northern Ireland. Well, the answer to that has already been given by Her Majesty's Government. If it's okay to take the UK out of the European Union on 52% of the vote, and it's okay to take two units of the Union with you against their will, namely Scotland and Northern Ireland, what possible objection can there be to 50% uh, plus one? Point two, in the Good Friday Agreement, it was agreed there would be power-sharing arrangements in the North, and in return, the existing position that Northern Ireland's status could change on the basis of the majority vote, that was preserved. Had it not been put in there, there would not have been Sinn Féin or SDLP consent to the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. And anyone who suggests otherwise, I think, is being misleading. That had to be there as part of the settlement. Now, that doesn't mean that I think that's the only thing that matters in uh, shaping the possibility of Irish reunification. It will be incumbent on any government in Ireland to prepare for two new big minorities, former Northern Nationalists and Ulster Protestants. And that will mean putting the constitutional house in order or preparing for a radical transformation of the constitution. It will mean thinking very carefully about the way the island has developed it's very Dublin-centric. Um, how are you going to get a more diversified uh, 
regionally strong economy in all parts of the island? All of those questions will arise. But I think the question of a qualified majority, suggested by the late Seamus Mallon, who was a good friend of mine, I think his biographer misled people. I don't think Seamus really believed that Irish unity would require cross-community consent in Northern Ireland. How would you accomplish that? Would the voters have to register as Catholics? I mean, I'm a cultural Catholic, but I'm not going to register as a Catholic. I'm an atheist. I don't want to register as a Catholic. Are other people going to register as Protestants? And how would we tell if I decided to pretend to be a Protestant or somebody else pretended to be a Catholic? How would we count up the votes to know that we had achieved a concurrent majority? Okay. So... That question, I think, is off the agenda. The European Union. The European Union is in uh, a tough condition. It's not sparkling. But I do think one of the consequences of the UK's departure was, first of all, to see the most astonishing display of solidarity in the Union's history. It was quite remarkable how unsuccessful the Foreign Office was in persuading small European states with strong allegiances to Great Britain to shift their positions on the withdrawal agreement. Now, that could be a, a temporary solidarity caused by uh, the UK's secession. It may not last. But if I was obliged to, to put a wager, I would expect that the performance of the rest of the EU going forward will be better than the performance of the UK. And that's all it has to be for it to continue. But I am not anticipating, contrary to what some people think, a fast move towards a more majoritarian federation in the rest of the EU. For the reasons I gave at the beginning of the lecture, I think that's unlikely. Okay, we can take three more. One in the middle with the glasses, one in the front here, and uh, yeah, at the back. Yeah, you go thank, first. Thank you so much. Um, Alex Kokcharov, I work for a, a political risk consultancy. Um, once the Soviet Union broke up in 91 relatively peacefully, following that what emerged in Russia this post uh, imperial nostalgia and desire to reestablish a greater country which fundamentally led to what happened in Ukraine in 2014 and you know further desires on Belarus designs on Belarus and and other countries if the UK is downsized to Kingdom of England and Wales do you think something similar might happen in England and Wales with the desire eventually to restore the greatness of Great Britain. Thank you. In the frontier? Yes. Uh, are there any circumstances under which the government might renege on its agreement to pay 39 million? And what would the consequences of that be other than WTO? Sorry. What would the consequences of reneging on the 39 million be other than WTO? One at the back there. Uh, thank you. My name is Alex. I come from another minority, or part of my family does, given that they were uh, Cosgrove's Church of Ireland. Um, I wonder if in 10 years' time, 15 years' time, whenever it is, 
Scotland has voted to become independent. Ireland has voted uh, for reunification. Is part of the reason that the Conservative Party is not going to go down the ruthless downsizing route that it risks further balkanisation, that that will no doubt inspire Wales to consider its own referendum and potentially either um, demands for regionalisation within the rest of England or perhaps even the, the ultimate uh, breakup of, of England with, with balkanisation in uh, maybe Yorkshire, maybe... Uh, passport Ordinary. to Pimlico. <laughs> maybe That's even the that. movie, 1950s. Indeed. Maybe I'll start there on on Wales. <laughs> so, in 1997, Wales only just voted in favour of devolution, and I think the reason is straightforward. Wales has more British people who think they're British and are of British stock and they're very mixed, they contain Scots, Welsh, and Irish, as well as English, in proportions that don't apply in Scotland and Northern Ireland. So Wales doesn't have, in my view, doesn't have enough authentically Welsh people for a successful cultural nationalist movement. That doesn't mean you can't have a strong regionalism, but I suspect that Welsh nationalism is weaker than its Irish counterpart for this reason, and the, the um, similar arguments can be applied in Scotland. If we look at the Welsh vote in 2016, it voted very like England in aggregate. And I've looked carefully in newspapers to find explanations. One is Wales is becoming more like England, and the other is that the Welsh are just damn ungrateful. Um, even though they benefited more in net per capita terms from the EU than any other part of the UK, they, they voted leave, but albeit by a small uh, proportion. I, if we look at the 2019 elections in Wales, you'll see, is that still there? You'll see that um, the Tories made a significant advance. But what I would want to claim here is that both Labour and the Conservatives, the pan-union parties, if you leave aside Northern Ireland, both of them have a strong interest in maintaining Wales. They have an electoral interest, a party interest. Uh, the Tories' interest here has revived. So I think that makes the position and predicament of, of Wales uh, rather different. We had a question here about what happens if the UK reneges on its obligations under the withdrawal agreement. Uh, I, it may be tempted to, but if it does so, um, it's most likely to do so if it's failed to make any kind of trade agreement in the course of the year ahead. Then it might be tempted to rescind from the withdrawal agreement. Then it would face, as I understand it, under international law, uh, there could be appropriate reciprocal balanced action by the states of the European Union against the UK for breaching its treaty obligations. 
you'd probably want to hire an international lawyer who probably earns a little bit more than I do to get a very precise question, but I suspect the UK would be obligated to have um, its outstanding sums owed collectively to the EU in some manner or shape. And it would maximise the likelihood of the EU erecting serious tariffs to collect the missing revenue in the interim. I think if the UK was foolish enough to do it, it would be brought to heel fairly quickly. Did I miss a question? There was a question on comparisons to post. Oh, yes. Wonderful question. So... Uh, will there be people roaming around with baseball caps saying, make Britain great again? Um, will, will the English set out to reconquer Ireland and Scotland? <laughs> but I don't agree with my co-national Fintan O'Toole on everything. He, he does say that the English are revolting against the European Union because they have imaginary grievances. And they think of the European Union as an empire from which they're liberating themselves. Well, I think that should be quite sufficient for them. They've liberated themselves from an empire. They're English. They have the three lions. They might conceivably get a better football team in the long run. And that would, I think, satisfy their um, national armor. But uh, armor proper. But let's be serious. I, I think a reduced... England and Wales, is still a big European state. Its capacity to flourish economically under wise policy shouldn't be put in doubt. Um, I don't think reconquest of the Russian style is in order. I don't think there's going to be an English minority in Scotland begging for an intervention by a London army. It's not going to happen. And from a loyalist point of view in Northern Ireland, part of their predicament and tragedy is that they are not loved over here. If they choose to embark upon violence, they're going to have no friends. So I don't envisage a similar scenario to Putin's, but thank you for posing the question. Okay, we've more or less come to the end of the session, so as chair, I just want you to thank you for coming and especially to thank Brendan for such an impressive talk. <laughs>